Well, good morning to everyone. And that's a quick transition sometimes between the service and Sunday school, but um, we will be in kind of a combination of passages today and a quick explanatory note. Um, just as you have probably sometimes seen a harmony of the Gospels, there are certain passages in the Kings and Chronicles where uh, we almost have to form a harmony of them because they, they splice together in such a way that if, if I do a, a chunk and I go back and forth like that, it really interrupts things. So what you're going to get today is kind of a mixture of 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 covering the life of Ahaz. Uh, this one's a hard one. Ahaz was pr- the most evil king at least of Judah and possibly of Judah and Israel up to this point. So he is not a nice individual to address today. But let's pray. Uh, The Lord does have plans for us with an understanding of his life. Father, grateful for the leadership that you give to us by expressing so clearly and so directly the effects of evil in this world and the effects that they have even sometimes on the righteous. And the passage that we have to consider today does give us a good reason to think through our surrounding culture, and instead of being imperiled by it and uh, concerned or worried and anxious by it, we have hope that is kindled even from the darkest times because of the testimony that you are in control. So we pray that you would direct our time today and cause your word to uh, be elevated in uh, each of our understanding and elevated in just our sense and awareness of the glory of your word and of your person. So bless our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Gravity creates some of the most awesome sights in nature. You can't have a waterfall without gravity. You are not going to see, you know, falling lava without gravity or geysers without gravity. So many things But it also creates some of the most dangerous conditions known to man. Gravity is a serious threat to us, especially as we get older and we don't bounce quite as easily as we used to. We don't roll quite as easily as we used to. We we break a little more quickly than we used to. The gravity that we find in nature around us shares an inexorable inexorability of crushing defeat when a person operates in arrogance of unbelief. Every year, there are instances of free climbers uh, who fall. There are uh, falling off ladders. We think we are a little bit younger than we are. We attempt to do things that we really shouldn't be doing at our age anymore and at our balance level. And any kind of self-exaltation that tries to transcend the laws of gravity uh, does not end well. Our text today in the Kings and Chronicles presents a somber theme Because God humbles the arrogance of unbelief, we may choose to lift ourselves up, and typically when we're lifting ourselves up, something's off in our thinking that is actually engaging in a form of unbelief or another, either unbelief about the reality of our fallenness, unbelief about the reality of our limitations, and certainly unbelief about God's own person. Well, God humbles that kind of arrogance. And we see that throughout Scripture. That's not news to us, but we're going to see it illustrated in a fascinating way. And with the theme, then, that we are to trust the Lord, not our own thinking. Because when we start trusting our own thinking, we end in ruin. 
So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 16. We'll start with um, 2 Kings, and and, um, throughout the patterning that I have there on the screen for you, when the material comes from 2 Kings, it's going to be in normal font, and I know anyone who listens to this online cannot see what we are seeing. Um, when it is in bold font, it's 2 Chronicles. So you'll actually be able to see where I've spliced those together. Um, actually, I don't think it was bold. I think it was a yellow font. Yellow font is Chronicles. So there you go. Okay, let's jump into this. In the second, 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He even burned his son, his children, in the fire as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This is not a warm and fuzzy individual. And this is not a nice life to cover. Remember that his father Jotham had reigned just 16 years, a short reign. And last week we addressed the fact that right when we start Jotham's life, The Lord says that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jotham followed his father David, only he didn't follow what his father Uzziah had done in entering the temple. In other words, there's nothing that the Lord critiques Jotham about. Nevertheless, the people continued on in their corrupt practices. God gave Jotham a relatively short reign, apparently because judgment was rushing upon Judah. It was time for Judah to be judged, and yet God would not do that in Jotham's reign. So 16 years, and here we have a a wicked king who's going to reign just 16 years. And during his reign, all the glory, all the grandeur, all the goodness, all the prosperity, everything that you would call delightful of his father's reign comes crashing down. God humbles the wicked, and specifically those who choose to lift themselves up in any way in arrogance against him. So the passage begins by showing us God humbles people through their own debauchery. Their own sinfulness is part of God's humbling of them. The Proverbs are going to tell us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach or a humbling to any people. People think they're glorifying something, and and again, they'll call it pride, pride month, pride marches. And you're like, you are taking pride in the very thing that is your debasement and your complete leveling and destruction and ruin. You're glorying in that which is most putrid about humanity. It'd be like our bragging about our garbage can. Let's go open a bag of garbage that's been sitting outside for a week in our hot summer sun down here in the south. We'll reopen the garbage bag and let's go through it together. Oh, I remember this chicken bone. It's only six days old and smells like death. Ah, what a great moment. 
And over here we have just, no, of course not. And yet that's exactly what happens in a personal decline and national decline. We start taking uh, pride in the very things that bring us low. So God humbles people through their own wickedness. And first he shows us that rebellion is its own humiliation. Ahaz reacted against everything good his father Jotham had done. He essentially had the attitude, I'm going to prove that I'm my own man, my own person, in charge of my own life. But like every rebel, he didn't have the sense to realize that by assaulting righteousness, he gets unrighteousness. If you assault decency, you get indecency. If you assault that which is bringing glory to a nation, you get dishonor. So go ahead, be a rebel. But if you're rebelling against righteousness, that is ruinous. Ultimately, Ahaz, by his choices, would undermine his own authority his own freedom, his own opportunity, and his own blessing. His rebellion undermined all good things and brought humiliation to the land. Idolatry is its own humiliation. Sorry, I need to go back here. Idolatry is its own humiliation. It's tragic to realize that the person who posted this picture, I got this obviously online, Uh, There were a whole bunch of pictures. Uh, The people who posted them were very proud of their worship of Ganesha. And you go, seriously, an an elephant with arms in weird, weird, colorful, bright garb that doesn't make a lot of sense. By the way, you notice the swastika on there. That's because that's an old, old Indian symbol. Adolf Hitler did not come up with it. He borrowed it from uh, the Indians way before him, Aryans, we would call it, the, the roots that a lot of the uh, European tribes actually had out of India. Um, but is it any less tragic when you look at a picture like this to realize that people all over the civilized world worship the works of their hands? They worship their jobs. They worship success and achievement. They worship a vacation home and their cars. How do you know we worship cars? Anybody see a little incident this week that happened down in Florida where a prosecutor, Democratic prosecutor who was involved in the prosecution of some January 6th people, was in an incident in which a person slumped in his car. Apparently he passed out or had some kind of a seizure in the vehicle in front of him and uh, slumped over the wheels. A couple of Good Samaritans jumped out of their cars and they ran up and started beating on his window and, and... Apparently he came to or they woke up, something happened. They, they got him alert again. And in his coming alert, he hit the gas pedal and hit the car in front of him. And, and then in just shock, he puts it in reverse to, and hit the guy behind him. Well, the guy behind him was a pro, Democratic prosecutor who promptly got out of his car, went up screaming in a rage, smashed the guy's windows in, and then started stabbing him with a knife that he had in his car. And you go, okay, so if, if merely you know, going into the Capitol and being stupid, inappropriate, uh, deserves 20-year sentence, what does a prosecutor who knows the law inside and out, who knows criminal uh, uh, procedures, processes, what law, and attempts to murder somebody merely for hitting his car, what does that deserve sentence-wise? And yet you go, that can only arise from a heart that is worshiping all the wrong things. Well, dial it down to our uh, uh, road offenses, which 
typically aren't going to involve that kind of road rage, but maybe another one in which we still are saying that what we worship is our time or what we worship is our being unencumbered by other people around us. And it takes us in, from being in a state of tranquility and peace and responsibility and distorts our faces and distorts our speech and it brings us low. We're actually humiliated by our own responses. The things around us in the world don't deserve our allegiance, but in reality, the things that allure us are no less twisted and distorted than Ganesha is. And our own idolatry will humiliate us. That's why we have the opportunity to constantly repent and turn to the Lord. And let go the things that cause our hearts to swerve away from an undiluted loyalty to our God that causes us to imitate him and all of his own virtues. Barbarity, third, is its own humiliation. Ahaz did not simply institute some old idolatry. You know, so for example, he did bring in the Baals from Israel... And Baal worship, all in all, in in its own day and age, was fairly benign. (laughs) Fairly benign. Mind you, it could lead to God's judgment and the complete destruction of your nation, but fairly benign, at least as far as and in comparison to some of the other deities that had been worshipped and were being worshipped. Some of the other deities, for example, of the Canaanites that had preceded Judah and Israel in the land... The iniquity of the Amorites that God references several times in the Old Testament, and he waits very patiently, takes his people out of the land under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, puts them in Egypt for over 400 years. Why? To allow the iniquity of the Amorites to rise to its full level, and then I'm going to destroy them completely because of their wickedness. What was that wickedness like? Well, it was involved with every depraved immoral practice known to humanity. It was also intersecting with human sacrifice. The the Sidonians and Tyrians were less concerned with stuff like that. Baal was not a god that was bloodthirsty. Sexually depraved, yes, but not bloodthirsty. People did not sacrifice their children, generally speaking, to Baal, but they did to the Canaanite deities the ones that preceded the people's entrance into the land. And some of those were still preserved in the gods of Edom and Moab and Ammon, like Chemosh and Milcom, gods that were worshipped by human sacrifice. Ahaz did not simply institute idolatry, he instituted the cruelest and most depraved form of idolatry that rose to the level, look at it, Kings tells us he killed his own son. Hang on to that fact. That's important later. Because we're going down, down, down so low in this text that we can become incredibly discouraged by the wickedness of this man and the influence that he had outward and the, and the influence that wicked people and culture had on him and get to the point of despair. There, there is going to be a tiny little window and sliver of blessing in what we see even here. 
but he kills his own son, according to the kings. And then the Chronicles passage added to that, it wasn't just one son, he killed his children and offered them up to lots of, because there were lots of pagan deities that demanded child sacrifice. So let's offer one child to this pagan deity and offer one to this pagan deity. He filled Jerusalem with the dead. His own lust for power and prosperity, both of which, by the way, God would deny to him because of his sin. He thought, let's just offer my children up, and then the gods will favor me, and then I can live an unencumbered and successful life. By the way, exactly the reason that we commit abortion today, so that we can live an unencumbered and free life. I don't want to be bothered by this. Children cost a lot of money, don't they? Trying to persuade some of our uh, children of that right now. He says, you you know, we help out in these ways. There's a lot of expense going on in, in the family due to I mean, how much does this cost? Your clothing, your food, your, the, the additional car insurance to have one of you driving. And then you start adding male children and the cost goes up real fast, right? It's expensive. Why don't we just disencumber ourselves of that by... That's exactly the way our world thinks. Ahaz wanted power. He wanted prosperity. So let's just disencumber ourselves of children and get the pagan deities approval in the process this brings him pretty low there's never been a Judean king quite like him so far Manasseh as far as I know is the only king that exceeds Ahaz in wickedness and God gave Manasseh an incredibly long reign in contrast to Ahaz for his own divine purposes therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. Then Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezan, the king of Assyria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel who struck him with great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maaseiah, the king's son, and Ezraikam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. Hang on to those names. What, uh, verse 18, also in Second Chronicles, which I chose not to put on the screen, says, And the Philistines had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah, and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ijalon, Gedaroth, Soko with its village, Timnah with its villages, and Gizmo with its villages, and they settled there. So what do we have coming up against poor Ahaz? Poor little Ahaz. The Syrians strike him from the north. Then they make a secondary alliance with Israel in the north, and the Syrians and Israel come up a second time against Judah. The Edomites are attacking him from the east, and the Philistines are attacking him from the west. He's surrounded by enemies. And I remember you to dial your memory back to Jotham. And in Jotham's day, Judah was expanding its power, and it was building fortifications. 
and its influence was wide-ranging, and the Ammonites were vassals to Judah. The other nations around them were fearful of Judah and did not come up and attack Jotham. And as soon as Ahaz is king, all of that is inverted. And so the passage tells us, first of all, that freedom is under God's control. Therefore, the Lord gave him into the hand of the king of Syria. So it's crucial for us to observe as believers that history does not just happen. History doesn't just occur. God gives nations over into the hands of other nations to suffer defeats. And from all the way up in the north, again, Syria comes against them. So God exalts one nation. He humbles another. He uses righteous instruments and wicked ones all to accomplish his purpose, the outcome that he's already planned. And our text also conveys two separate captivity events. First, reason leads captive people to Damascus. Then Pekah leads 200,000 captives into Israel. That's a large number of people, not just a couple of villages, but a savaging of the power of Judah. Judah lost its freedom because of the arrogance of unbelief manifested in specific sin, but it also lost territory because territory is under God's control. Can you note the boundaries of the adversary's successes? It's always helpful to look at maps because when you read things like, yeah, and then the uh, Syrians took Elath, you go, great, the Syrians took Elath. Never heard of Elath before. What does that even mean for us? Okay, map of Israel again. There's Elath. Actually, I couldn't get Elath onto the map. The Syrians, who are in the far, far, far north, farther north than Israel, came all the way down to the Red Sea. Judah extended all the way down to the port city, Elath, sitting on the Red Sea. And the Syrians are conquering Elath? What are they doing way down there? God is so thoroughly defeating Judah before its enemies because of the wickedness of Ahaz that its adversary can march the entire length of its land and destroy its major port city. Uh, Judah didn't have major port cities on the Mediterranean coast, partly because the Mediterranean coast doesn't have good harbors until you get up near Tyre. Uh, very difficult because when, you're, when your uh, uh, sea slopes out very, very gently, you can't exactly sail ships in. You need to go to a coastline and have it drop off pretty steeply in order to have a major port city like it did at Elath. And yet here come the Syrians against them and destroy them and defeat them and God delivers them into uh, Syria's hand. What effect is that going to have then? If you take Judah's major port city, we're going to get to this down the road in our discussion, but that's going to have a rather serious financial consequence on Judah, won't it? You think it would be no big deal if, say, a nation came up against America and and took a few small cities like Charleston, Wilmington, Norfolk, and New York? And you're like, well, those are our major ports on the eastern seaboard. How are we supposed to get goods from Europe? You're not. You're not, unless Europe sends its goods through the Panama Canal and back through, or sends them to Canada and then ships them down that direction to us. The cost of everything goes up and the ruin and wreck is occurring. But wait, it gets worse. The Philistines attack this entire region. Ijalon, 
Ajalon. There's actually a major battle that took place at Ajalon in which Joshua asks for the sun to stand still, right? That's when the, the people have penetrated far into the land and they're trying to conquer a consortium of kings that have come up against them. And he prays, Lord, we're defeating them already, but we need more time. Sun, stand still. And God stopped. I don't know how he does it. Did he merely refract light? Did he stop the rotation of the earth? And yet somehow without all of us flying off into space from inertia and the, the seas all sloshing to one side of the earth because they were already in motion. And we don't know how God did it. But for an additional 24 hours, they got sunlight and allowed them to carry on with their battle against the uh, combined enemies that had come up against them. But that particular region, the Shephelah with the cities named here, Beth Shemesh, and Ijel, Beth Shemesh is the city, you know, where the cows, the, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines for a period of time. And then they had all sorts of plagues. It sounds like the bubonic plague was striking them or something. It's like, we've got to get rid of this Ark, otherwise the gods of the Israelites are going to kill us all. So they stick it on a cart and they send it up. And they're like, well, we'll keep the calves here back in our Philistine cities and we'll check because the, the cows will normally want to return to their calves. And if they do what's normal, then we know that this was just an accident. It was just one of the, the happenstances of, of life that we were struck with plague. But if the cows do something that was completely abnormal and they leave their calves crying for milk and they just walk away from them, and they go back to Judah, then we'll know that it really was the God of Israel that was up. And the cows left, and they made a straight line to Beth Shemesh. Didn't turn back. That's that region. It's a fertile region. Um, you're not going to grow much down in the desert areas of Judah. But you can as you get towards the Mediterranean, because what you can't see on this map is that Israel is essentially shaped like this. Okay, big peak in the middle, and that's the hill country of Judea and of Judah and Ephraim. And then it drops off very steeply again to the Salt Sea and the Jordan Rift. Well, what happens as water, clouds, and things like that come off of a nice, warm, moist body like the Mediterranean Sea, and they start going up steep slopes? Any meteorologists? Okay. It all condenses, right? Because the water is going to be propelled upward, and as it gets, as it cools, cooling is a condensation process, you're going to wring all the moisture out of the clouds on the slopes as you move up from Philistine territory towards Judean territory. So area that way is all fertile and green and prosperous, and you go into the hill country of Judea, and you're down to just a few inches of rain. You drop off the other side and go into the Jordan Rift, and you're lucky if you ever see rain during the year in parts of the Jordan Valley. We're in a rain shadow, even with Paris Mountain. Paris Mountain is a monadnock-type mountain where it's just by itself sitting there, and there's not a lot of mountains directly around it. So if you happen to be on the east side of that mountain, you don't get much rain. Because the storms either split and go around you because of the force of the mountain or the water condenses and rains on the west slopes and the northwest slopes and it's dry by the time it reaches you. So this is happening all over the place and the Philistines are taking territory then that Jotham had won 
and it's the fertile regions. They're taking the breadbasket of Judah. There is another uh, territory in all of Israel's land, but it's way up in the north. And remember, we're already fighting against Pekah, so it's not like he's shipping us a whole bunch of grain. If you lose the Shephelah, you're in trouble. And you're going to be reduced to camel herds and things that can live on scrubland in the Negev. Judah's reduction then is just to this little hill country. Just to a little bit of a hill country. Right along the spine there. And God has given the rest of the territory into the hands of their enemies. The passage continues though. Life is under God's control. You know I worked and worked on that slide. And according to the, my PowerPoint. It was perfect. Okay. So let me read that. Life is under God's control. Okay. Um, and the future is under God's control. 120,000 are killed in one day in battle. And the talk, chalk does not talk, uh, sorry, the passage does not chalk this up to the vagaries of war, just the shifting fortunes again of war. It specifically and explicitly says, because they had forsaken the Lord, their God of their fathers. Imagine wiping out one third of the population of Greenville County in one day. Would that have an economic effect on our area? Especially if we selected from that, we killed not just 120,000, so one-third of Greenville County's population, but you killed the males all in one day. Depending on what the size of Judah was at this time, this was probably between 5 and 10% of its total manpower killed in a single battle. Is that going to have an effect? What is that going to do to the women and children left behind? Now, let's think here. You took our port city in the south, so that's gone. Our our shipping avenues are gone. You took our uh, fertile regions in the west, so our farming and breadbasket is gone. Now you kill the men that are needed to provide for their families, to protect the land in the future, to do all sorts of trades, and you kill them all in one day? The incredible effect that this is going to have on uh, Judah is just absolutely profound. God humbles these people through military defeat. Life itself is under God's control, and even the victories and losses of specific and individual battles in history are under God's control. The most unlikely events have occurred in human history where small forces defeated large forces. And you know some of these. Some of you are historians. I love the story of like this, the sinking of the Spanish Armada where British ships sank a few Spanish ships and God sank the rest. And he did so through storms and through forcing the Spanish fleet entirely through the North Sea and then up around England and up around Ireland and coming back down to Spain. God dealt the biggest blow to the fleet. Many times in human history, God has demonstrated that life is under his control. And so it is even in our nation in our time. The future is under God's control. In the same battle, there's a really important statement in Chronicles. So let's look at verse 7 together again. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, a single guy, killed Maaseiah, the king's son. 
and Ezrikim the commander of the palace, and Elkanah next in authority to the king. So Ezrikim, as commander of the palace, is going to be like chief of staff. He runs everything. He's Mr. Logistics. He's going to run the food coming in, the military protection, everything related to the king's own household, and he's gone. Elkanah, next in authority to the king. Remember, a chief of staff is not generally next in the line of authority. He just runs everything. So this is the uh, vice president killed in a single day. But look who was first. God killed via Zikri, Maaseiah, the king's son. I told you we'd come back to this. The king himself killed his own son and his own children, sacrificing to the pagan deities. Then his heir goes out to battle, and God kills him in battle. Boy, this is a dark time. Good is going to come from this, but this is an incredibly dark time. God was getting ready for the next king to replace Ahaz. And in his mercy, he's actually removing the obstacles to that next king. Who follows Ahaz? Hezekiah. What is Hezekiah's disposition towards the Lord? He loves the Lord. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He rebuilds, refortifies Jerusalem, and God expands him. This would be that same Hezekiah. We get to study him, fortunately, in just two weeks out, okay? So hang on. Good things are coming. But this is going to be that same Hezekiah that prays when Assyria comes and besieges Jerusalem again. And Hezekiah is going to tell the Lord, you know what? They are as powerful as they are bragging about, Lord. They are. Listen to hide it. They are just as powerful and we are just as weak as they're talking, okay? So we're not just saying it's mere boasting. But, Lord, I would like to remind you, on the other hand, that the other nations that they've conquered are following the works of their hands and mere idols, and you are not an idol, just saying. And he leaves it in the Lord's hands. It's that Hezekiah that's going to come next. And yet, presumably, based on the way this narrative unfolds, Hezekiah wouldn't even have been king. But for the fact that Ahaz's wickedness reached this supremely high level so that he is killing his own children and God is bringing judgment of a sort that he destroys the heir to the throne in battle. The future is under God's control. And we say this because there's always hope for the people of God. It is appropriate for us to point to the wickedness of the wicked and say it is is just as bad and the days are just as dark as we sense and we feel. There really are conspiracies of wickedness in this world. But God, God is continuing to orchestrate even the people that rise to power And he can remove those who would be obstacles to his achieving righteousness or at least a reprieve for the righteous for another generation. As we approach another political season then, consider the fact that God is doing something. He's he's not fulfilling my will. He's not fulfilling your will. He's fulfilling his will. But if the Lord so chooses, he could take us lurching towards complete wreck and ruin of depravity. And he can, if he chooses, 
bring us into a position where at least a more, more righteous individual, a more sound and moral thinking individual is the next ruler. And if not, then he's simply testifying that America's wickedness has reached the point where his judgment is going to continue falling. And if so, if that is true, we continue on in faith before him. Therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people. We've referenced this. And the fact that the men of Israel took captive um, uh, 200,000 of their relatives and brought them in the spoil to Samaria. The Edomites again invaded the land and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And I, I reiterate this point to dwell on that point of captives, captives, captives. And Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Ahaz tried to buy off Assyria's favor by saying, we'll become your vassals and we'll give you a bunch of money. It only partly worked. They did become vassals, but Tiglath-Pileser never really cared about them. And it says he afflicted him instead of strengthening him. God humbles people through profitless servitude. Look at all these new masters. Again, I remind you that under Jotham, Judah was free and other people were Judah's servants, other vassal states. Now that is completely inverted. Verse 5, Syria wins and takes people captive. Verse 8, Israel wins and takes people captive. Verse 17, the little old Edomites win and take people captive. Verse 20, Tiglath-Pileser wins, and instead of helping and strengthening him, he afflicts them. So there is bondage brought on the people because of their sin. Everyone is lining up for his pound of flesh. The modern form of this may take the, the form of servitude to foreign powers or can also occur internally. Is there any way in which we are steadily brought under bondage and servitude? You say, well, what's the nature of bondage as opposed to employment? In employment, I kind of pick my own job. I go out and I I can interview and hopefully the interview goes well and say, this is a job I'd like to have. You get hired, you negotiate for pay. And if they don't pay me enough, I leave. What's the difference between that and slavery? Slavery, you can't leave. And slavery, you don't get to determine how much of your resource is given to the slave owner. Does that sound something like this? The federal government now takes between 25 and 52% of every dollar earned, depending on your tax bracket. So if you're low tax bracket, 25% is going to the federal government. Now they pretend like it's not because they layer the taxes and they spread them out and they put some of them over here and some of them over there and they call some of them not taxes, but it's really just taxes. They're trying to hide. It's a shell game. They're trying to hide how much you're really taxed. States then take an additional up to 13% in income tax. South Carolina is not that high. It's generally more around 5%. But then again, you have a 6% sales tax on top of your 5% income tax. So you're back to around 11%. But wait, there's more because then most states have property taxes that depending on how much property you own, how many cars you have, how much is another 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 10% of all told. Oh, by the way, there are local and municipal taxes. And if you live in an HOA, that's a tax. 
that's a tax because if you refuse to pay it and say, I'm not paying this whatever maintenance fee thing, that's fine. They'll take you to court and put a lien against your property. Guess who's the master? The HOA is. You're renting. You're renting from the federal government. You're renting from the state government. You're renting from local governments. And you're even renting from your HOA. You don't own anything. Boy, that's discouraging. (laughs) And it has happened as America has departed from, as we depart from the Lord, taxation will continue to grow. Why? Because servitude, profitless servitude, is a main feature of God's judgment on a people. Uh, Let's just show you a few other things real quickly. So Tiglath-Pileser comes against them. Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and from the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to Assyria. It did not help him. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. God humbles the people through financial ruin. Again, just one week ago, we explored the increasing glory and strength of Judea. I know you took notes, so you probably have this fresh on your memory. How much money was flowing into his treasury every week? Sorry, every year? $2.6 million in tribute money. Enough food to sustain 60,000 citizens. Now the inflows have become outflows. Outflows have become a stream, and a stream is a torrent. Obvious financial hemorrhages here. Ahaz steals from the house of the Lord, adds money from his own treasury, and taxes the rulers of the people just to pay a bribe. Later, he cuts up all the valuable articles of gold, silver, and bronze from the temple, since both he despises the worship of the Lord and he needs more money to pay a bribe. But there are less obvious, more pernicious forms of financial hemorrhages. Those 120,000 soldiers killed in one day, that's financial hemorrhage. A nation does not recover from the loss of 5 to 10% of its manpower easily. Judah's loss of the port city, every surrounding nation is attacking Judah. And the change of one king to another, Judah has shifted from creditor to debtor nation, prosperous to ruined. When God decides to humble a people for their unbelief, because of their unbelief and their pride, nothing is safe. In the time of his distress, he became more faithless. Uh, let's just run through this really quickly. Okay, basically he goes up and copies an altar of Damascus and starts using an, uh, a new altar and worshiping a pagan god. There's so much here. God humbles people through their own warped thinking. Here's how the thinking goes. Syria defeated us in battle. True or False. True. The gods of Syria must be stronger than our God. Therefore, I will worship Syria's gods. That's his thinking. And the passage explicitly says so. But wait. Ahaz was already worshiping the Canaanite deities. So shouldn't he have reasoned this way? Israel defeated seven nations in battle, all of which, each of which, was greater and stronger in its own military might than the entirety of Israel when it invaded the land. So how in the world does this little old Israel invading the land defeat entrenched nations, established nations, withstanding armies, each of which is stronger than they are? The God of Israel must be stronger than the gods of the pagans, therefore I will worship Yahweh. And yet, before, before Syria ever attacked him, he had already abandoned the Lord. You think, how can you, this is complete incoherent thinking here. If your second line of reasoning was true, then you should have reasoned the same way back over here and never departed from the Lord in the first place. But if your second line of reasoning is false, then so is that. It's all messed up. Is there any coherence to the thinking of people today? 
or do they do whatever they're going to do in any given moment? And finally, very end, Ahaz slept with his fathers. They buried him in the city in Jerusalem. They did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. God humbles people through final ignominy and obscurity. Ahaz wasn't even treated like a king. He's just a common jerk. Bury him like a common jerk that he is. I know that sounds really harsh, but that's God's attitude and opinion of him. Ahaz sought the favor of everyone. He became all things to all men, and he was nothing to God. So two verses summarize his life. The Lord humbled Judah, and in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. I've always been a bit scared of heights. It may have something to do with my profound balancing ability. Sometimes I can even stand upright as long as both my feet are on the ground. Once I worked with a guy who had no fear. His name was Dave. And we were building a three-story house that also had a basement under it. We were up on the third story, starting to put some of the rafters on for the roof. And uh, Dave fell off the steep side of the house. It was built into a bank. So four stories that he has to fall down. And in his case, fortunately, Dave was about as agile as a cat. And as he passed the second story, he reached out, grabbed a windowsill on the way by, caught himself on the framing, curled into a ball, rolled through the window, landed on the second floor, and and walked away, and was laughing giddily from the experience. I was shaking, I think, more than he was. Although something about his taking the afternoon off (laughs) might have. Dave was a little too overconfident. He was a little too overconfident. He had built houses his entire life and just assumed that he could do this and get away with it. And because of it, gravity took effect and almost led to his serious injury or death. We have to recognize that in some sense there are things at work in the spiritual world in which God is inexorably acting more forcefully, more directly, more intentionally, obviously, and more intelligently than gravity. But he humbles the arrogance of unbelief, and therefore we as his people have to continue trusting him, even in a dark age. Father, we're thankful for this testimony of Ahaz. It's been very dark, and yet there's always hope. You were paving the way for Hezekiah, even in the midst of the darkness of Ahaz's reigns. May we not participate as your people with the fear, the anxiety, the frustration, and certainly the evil of our age, but put our hope fully in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.